I was going to introduce this by saying that um, this is the fourth, the final in our series, but it's not actually. It's just the final in the introduction because, <laughs> because um, what we're thinking about whole life discipleship as a church is not just something that goes on for four weeks in the beginning of January, uh, through January, and then it finishes, but it's a, it's a lifestyle thing that we're thinking about. But this is the fourth in the series in which we're introducing this whole concept of the whole of life being a discipleship and how we can apply that to our lives. The first week we just thought about what whole life discipleship meant. Then the second week we thought about the authority of the master. Jesus is the one that we are serving and following. Then last week uh, we talked about this concept of Jesus calling us to be his disciples, to be his followers, his Talmudim, as we talked about a little bit last week. And this week we are looking at the subject of recognizing the Master's uh, church, or releasing the Master's church. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of Jesus in the New Testament, um, especially Mark, for example, but the other Gospels are much the same. You know, it goes from one incident to another incident to another incident through Jesus' life, his teaching, his parables, his sharing with people, his explaining people. And then it comes to the last week or so of Jesus' life, and it seems that the whole thing slows down. And a third of the Gospels are to do with what we refer to as the Passion, the final time, final part of Jesus' life, running up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself and all that took place then and so on. And about a third of the Gospels are to do with that. That is the central thing. And in preparation for that, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he leaves. And with that in mind, we're going to read together from John's Gospel, chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13, page 1081 in the Church Bibles. If you want a Church Bible, and put your hand up. One will be brought to you if you didn't pick it up. On the way in. Page 108, when John's Gospel, chapter 13. John 13, page 1081. We are going to read... Um, from verse 31. Now actually, let's read a little bit further, uh, a bit earlier than that, from verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He, shares my, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His dis disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Jesus, Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Jesus, Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had the, uh, taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going you cannot follow now, but you will later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Last week we thought of an incident at the beginning of Jesus' life when he walked along the beach. We talked of it from Matthew chapter 4 and he saw the people fishing there and he called Peter and Andrew and James and John. And we thought about that and tried to put ourselves in the picture and hearing, seeing Jesus coming and saying to us, come, follow me, so that they left everything and began to follow him as, the, as his followers, as their, his disciples. But now it comes to this incident at the end of his life. He has his friends, the disciples, around the table with him, and he's talking with them. And I want you to do the same thing. Put yourself in the picture. Sit down with them. Think for a little bit, as if you were there. See if you can focus on it, as if you're one of those sitting around the table with Jesus. Jesus is saying to them, he, he, as he deals with his disciples, I, I want to give you a new focus. He's just washed their feet. That little video clip hinted at that, of course. He's washed their feet. And he says earlier on, I want you to wash one another's feet. That's in verse 14, I think it is. And... Uh, Jesus says to them, I want you to wash one another's feet. Now, the disciples, as they sat round that table, they were mixed up in their thinking and the emotions. They really didn't know quite what was going on. Um, Jesus is teaching them and he's telling them about leaving them. And they just didn't understand it. Their minds were in a, in a whirl. He couldn't, they couldn't take it in. 
And they've told, he's told them that they should wash each other's feet just in the same way as he'd done. Remember, they're his followers. They're trying to see what he does and do what he did, hear what he says and say, say what he said. So as he washed the disciples' feet, he says, now this is how you do it. This is what you're to do. You wash one another's feet. There in verse 14. But they didn't understand and a little bit later on in the next chapter, he starts by that next chapter by saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. They didn't understand that either. Their minds were sort of in a whirl trying to put all this together. What is he actually saying when he's saying he's going to leave us? And I want them, and he said, I want you to just copy me and follow me and do what I did, just as I've washed your feet. And by the way, when he said that, though we didn't read it, Verse 17 tells us that when we do that, when we wash one another's feet, we will be blessed if we do it. It's not that we're going to miss out, but we will be blessed if we do that. And now to his, their amazement, he begins to talk about, one of you is going to betray me. Now they couldn't compute that either. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? How can that possibly be? We've lived with you for three and a half years. We've left everything and followed you. We've, we've uh, given up our past way of life to follow you. We've heard you speak and we've tried to speak in the same way. We've watched the things you do and we've tried to do the same sort of things. We are your followers. We are your disciples. And now you're saying that one of you is going to betray you. What do you mean by that? They couldn't understand it. This sitting around the table was a time of intimacy, and of closeness, a sort of family atmosphere as they chatted together, and a sense of respect as they talked together with one another. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. So tough for them to take it in. They couldn't get their minds round it. In verse 22, it says in the New International Version that I read from, they were at a loss to know what he, what he meant by that. The ESV says... They were uncertain. They couldn't put it in place. They didn't, what, what does this mean? One of you is going to betray us. The word literally means they were embarrassed through lack of resources. They hadn't got what it, what it took to understand that, is what it literally means. Have you ever been in that situation? Um, I don't know that I have, but when it, but, uh, you know, you, you go out with a friend for a meal and you take this friend out for a meal or you sit down with a meal and you say, well, I'll pay. When it comes to the end, you get out your credit card and hand it to the waiter or the person who's taking the money and um, you put it in the machine and it refuses to accept it. And you put the key in the number, the number of password number in again and it refuses to accept it and say it's being rejected all the time and you're so embarrassed because you've asked this friend out for a meal and you said you would pay for it. Now you haven't got any money and you can't pay. Of course, it's entirely because you've got the wrong password. It's not because you haven't got any money. I know that. But, you know, you know it's um, so embarrassing when they haven't, haven't got the resources to do what you said. These disciples were terribly, terribly embarrassed. They could not compute the fact that Jesus said he was going to, one of them was going to betray him. So Peter nudges John and says, ask, ask him who it is. See if you can get from him, because John was sitting next to Jesus. Ask him who it is that he's talking about. You're closest, you're half leaning on him. So John leaned over onto Jesus' shoulder and said, who are you talking about? Who is this one that's going to betray you? Tell us who it is. 
And Jesus said, well, when I dip this piece of bread into the dish, I'll hand it to someone. That's the person. That's the person. And he dips the piece of bread into the dish and he hands it to Judas. Now, John, at that point, is the only one in that group who knew who it was. The only one. Because Jesus had just indicated, by that means, who the person was. I think that John's mind was in a whirl over this. <coughs> Judas? I mean, he's the treasurer of this group. When Susanna and Joanna and Mary and the other women gave money to the support of the disciples, which you can read about in the first few verses of Luke 8, when they gave money to support the disciples, it was Judas that handled that. I mean, he was the trusted one amongst them. He was the one who was their treasurer. He paid their taxes. He paid their tithes at the temple. He gave money away. He bought the food for them. I mean, he was the trusted one. Judas. And he must have been thinking to himself, well, I know the Lord's always right, but I mean, what about when he did this? And what about when he did that? He's not a betrayer. And yet, that's what Jesus had said. And I think his mind was in a, uh, in a whirl recalling and scanning the three and a half years they'd walked together with him. And how could it be that it was Judas? Later on, of course, Peter, in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, recalled Psalm 69 where he said, well, that's where it's speaking about Judas betraying him. But at this point, they hadn't thought of that. They hadn't recognized all that. So John, at this point, is the only one who knows what's going on. It's Judas. Judas. And perhaps the most puzzling thing for John was the terms in which Jesus expressed this, how he told them this. He said that he is going to initiate the act. In fact, Jesus said to Judas, okay, Judas, now's the time. Go out and do what you've got to do. Judas initi Jesus in, uh, initiated the betrayal by sending Judas out. Okay, go and do it. That's the first thing that John must have noticed. And the second thing was how Jesus put it into words. As soon as Judas had gone out, did you notice when we read it together, as soon as he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Can you imagine that? Here's this one, one of the, friend, the closest friends of Jesus, gone out to betray him, and she said, Now he's glorified. It must have been so difficult for John. And he must have been sitting there thinking, I just can't put this all together. That it was unbelievable, incomprehensible, to think that it's this means by which Jesus is glorified. It's the start of him actually being glorified. And not only him, but the Father, it says in those verses there. The Father being glorified. This going out and betraying is the means, the demonstration, the portraying of his glory, the revealing of his glory. And um, did you notice verse 32? It isn't something that's going to happen one day, Jesus says. You know, the ma because of this, Jesus will be glorified. It says, God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. At once, immediately. Judas going out, that set this in motion immediately. That Jesus was being glorified. So John is let into this secret about Judas. Jesus initiates the event, the event and he says it's the means by which the Son of Man, Jesus himself and his Father, are being glorified.
John, beyond all the other disciples, must have been absolutely mystified by all this. He was the only one who knew at that point. And he obviously focused intensely on what Jesus said from there on. He was probably involved in all the conversation, the buzz of chatting together and so on during the meal and so on. But now when Jesus said this and he's led into the secret, John must have focused intently on what Jesus was saying as he went on from there. Okay, well, well, I must pay attention to this. What does he actually mean by this? Will he tell us what he means? And Jesus says four things. And here are the four things. First of all, he says, my little children, my little children. It says, just says uh, my children in the NIV, but, but it, in fact, it's, the word he uses is the word for a little toddler, little children, and it's possessive. It's my little children is what he actually says there, as it has in many uh, versions. Such a tender phrase, little children. I mean, remember last week we talked about these disciples being tough, fishermen types. You know, suntan, out in boats, fishing, rowing, hauling in nets with fish in, selling them at the market. Then there's Matthew, swindler. And then there's Simon the Zealot, we thought of. You know, he's a terrorist that's been converted and all that. These are tough men, but now this little, my little children, Jesus calls them, around that table. A completely different way of describing them. You know, that phrase, my little children, there's once it's used by Paul, the apostle in one of his letters, in a completely different way in Galatians. But apart from that, it's never used in John's Gospel. It's never used in the whole of the New Testament, except here, my little children. That is to say, it's only used here except one other place, and that is, John's first letter. And in John's letter, when John gets round to writing a letter, he uses it again and again and again. I think he really picked it up from, from here. Seven times in his first letter, he talks to those he's writing to as my little children. It had been burned into John's head and into his heart as they sat round this table. In fact, John 1, the first letter of John, is a commentary on these few verses, John 13, verses 31 to 35. And I'm sure that that's clear when you read it in that light. It's his commentary on these few verses. That's why I think that John really focused on what Jesus was saying around that table. Many situations where people could have taken up that phrase, my little children, but John's the only one who does it, and he does it seven times in his letter. And John, it becomes for John his, his favorite way of, ex, uh, of speaking to his flock. Then there's a new commandment, Jesus says, verse 34. And guess what? That phrase is only used once in John's Gospel here and nowhere else in the New Testament except by John in 1 John. And it's used again and again in 1 John, several times there. In other words, these words had been burned into his mind too, so much that it changed the whole of John's life and ministry. I mean, before that, remember, John had been called with James's brother, Boanerges by Jesus, I means sons of thunder. They were the ones who wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up one of the Samaritan villages. They had that sort of hot temper about them. And Jesus called them, you're sons of thunder, you are. But now he becomes the apostle of love and 
He even calls the others, my little children. And he does hear to these people. And only John picks up on it, my little children. Then there's the third thing. By this men all by this all men will know, he says in verse 35. Uh, it's taken up by John again in his first letter. Again and again. And the, one of the themes of the first letter of John is we know, this is how we know, this is how we can tell. We know, we know, we know. He got it from here. This is how people will know you're my disciples. I mean, sometimes you have people knock on your door and you see them and you know who they are. When a couple of young men come round with short hair and navy blue suits and a badge and a white shirt and tie and said they want to talk to you about some things in the Bible, you know where they've come from, don't you? They're almost certainly Mormons. And they're visiting in the area. You can tell just by looking at them. Or when others come round, as soon as they start talking, you know where they've come from. When they say, um, where, where do you think you will spend eternity? Or something like that. You know immediately, these are Jehovah's Witnesses. And they begin to talk about 144,000 and things like that. And you know by the things that they say. But Jesus says there's something else that should mark us out. It's not those things, not what we look like, not what we say that should mark us out, but something else. It's a, a different system that he's calling for, and here it is, that you should love one another. This is the fourth thing Jesus said. This is my new commandment. By this people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. That is it. That's the theme. Love one another. And he calls them his little children and says, this is what I want you to do as little children, to love one another. It's not being a great theologian. It's not being a great expositor of the Bible. It's not being a fantastic speaker or any of those things that mark us out as his children. Not asceticism. Cutting ourselves off from others. Not self-denial. Not building great churches or systems or institutions. None of those things. It is loving one another. So having said goodbye to Judas who'd gone out to betray him, he, recall, he calls them his little children and says to them, love one another. Now, what does that mean for followers like us of Jesus? Well, as far as we're concerned, it's that we too should love one another. In fact, he says a little earlier, you should love one another as I have loved you. You're his disciples, seen me do it, now you do it. Love one another. Um, now, you may be saying, well, Surely the biggest, the most important thing that we should do is put our faith in Jesus, trust in him. And now you're saying that the, the important thing is that we love one another. Which is it? Is it that we have faith in him or is it that we love one another? <laughs> it's interesting that John in his first letter puts it like this. This is his command to believe in, that is faith, to believe in the name of the Son of God and to love one another as he has commanded us. So there he puts the two together. But they're put together under this is my command. And that word is singular. In other words, the single command is both love and have faith. It's not here are my commands. Number one, you, love, you believe in me. Number two, you love one. Not that at all. It's one command he gives us, believe and love. That's the single command I'm giving to you. That we should love one another. And I think that's very important for us because it means 
that as he calls us, we cannot exempt ourselves out from the second half. As we put our trust in Jesus, and we are saved, because of what he did for us on the cross, the other half of loving one another is the, not only the natural outcome of that, but it's the essential command of that. The two belong together. Loving each other is the, is the same coin as believing in Jesus, just the different sides of the same, same thing. When I was a young evangelist setting out, I used to go to the evangelist conference that was held every year by the Evangelical Alliance. And it, about 400 went at that time. It doesn't run anymore. But it was a really great time, especially for younger evangelists like me going along. And one of the conferences, they raised the question, um, what is the irreducible minimum a person needs to know and act on to become a Christian? And they talked and said, well, it's just that you've got to have faith in Jesus. Then somebody said, yeah, but don't you have to be, say, I, I will be his disciple too? And they started this debate. Is it just faith or is there this discipleship? Do you have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord to acknowledge him as Savior? And this debate went on. It was all very instructive but not very helpful. But, um, you know, they're not divided. They belong to the same thing. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, this command is yours. It's not something you read the disciples, that you are commanded to love one another. I'm commanded to love other people too. So that faith is vertical, loving one another is horizontal, but it's the same thing. So John, when he takes this up, remember, 1 John is the commentary on these verses, when you take up one, what John says in 1 John, again and again, he emphasizes this loving one another, loving one another, because you've got faith in him. It's the visible demonstration, the outcome, the inevitable consequence of having faith. So 1 John 4 verse 7, because you love, it will show that you've been born again. 1 John 3 verse 14, we know we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love one another. 1 John 3 verse 10. By this you can know it's evident who are the children of the devil and who are the children of light. How? Because you love one another. 1 John 4 verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. Or 1 John 2 verse 9. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. See, all these things come from... It shows that we've been born again when we love each other. It shows that we've passed from death to life. It shows that we are following um, Jesus and not following the devil. It shows that we know God. It shows that we walk in the light. And you cannot show those things unless you love, is what is being said here. So it's loving one another. Now some of you may be thinking, well, this is all very well, all very interesting, but what's this got to do with whole life discipleship? I thought that was our theme today, whole life discipleship. But can't you see that this brotherly affection, this loving one another, this stirring one another up, this encouraging one another is the very heart of what whole life discipleship is about. It's our relationships with each other. That's the key. As uh, Andrew was telling us, it's not going to church or putting up buildings or whatever it might be. It's loving one another. The discipleship comes in that way. We're in this together. Discipleship, following Jesus, is not lifestyle for the isolated and the separated, the independent believer. We have to encourage one another in this, loving one another. 
loving one another. We have to encourage one another because we belong to each other. It's the body life. It's the fellowship. It's the belonging. So no wonder the writer of the Hebrews puts it like this in chapter 10. um, Don't give up meeting together, but encourage one another. Hebrews 10.25. By the way, that means that every time you're not here, every time I'm not here, when we could be here, you are depriving not just yourself, you're depriving me, and I'm depriving you. We're depriving each other. That's why it's so important to meet together. And all of us meet together. Of course, there are times when we can't, and understand that, but uh, when we can, it's important that we are. That's what the gathered church is all about. I need you in my following Jesus. You need me, whether you like that idea or not. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, every time we share in bread and wine, every time we take this loaf of bread and we break it and share it together, in our worship, we're showing that we're one. He puts it like this. Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all participate in the one loaf. That's actually why in this fellowship we try to have one loaf that we break physically. Some church you go to and they have broken it before and it's cut up in little pieces and so on. That's fine. But it is a visible demonstration of the one loaf in which we all participate. And we drink of one cup because of the oneness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, says Paul, we were all separate, we were all different, we were all aliens, we were citizens of other groups and other nations, but in Ephesians 2 he says, but now we're all one. We've been brought together. So as you walk with Christ, and as I walk with Christ, as she walks with Christ, as he walks with Christ, we're holding hands together, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And whole life discipleship demands that we work together. So we strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, the first four verses. And so we can go even further. The very heart of of what the church is all about, the gathering of together as as, as, a church to worship, that can only be done when we're all here. This is what Paul says in Corinthians. I pray, says Paul, that you may be rooted, established in love, and may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know the love that surpasses knowledge, to be filled with the whole measure of the fullness of God. See, you can't do that on your own. It's only together with all the saints. Your understanding and my understanding and her understanding, his understanding, we bring them together. And together, our mind is expanded, our hearts are expanded in love for him. We begin to know the love of Christ. We belong together. So why is all this important? Because the primary appeal to the trustworthiness of our message and the primary means of expanding and enabling our worship is is, is our love for one another. Our love for one another. But now let's be practical. What will this mean in practice, thinking of discipleship and following Jesus? What does it mean in practice? Well, first of all, when we learn to love one another, there is no one-upmanship. No desire for power. Paul says in Philippians, count others better than yourselves. He said, each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also the interests of others. 
Philippians 2.14. You know, um, Ronald Reagan, U.S. president, he had a a notice on his desk, a plaque made to put on his desk. He got it from Truman, Harry Truman. Uh, And Harry Truman got it from Emerson. But the plaque simply said this, there is no limit to what a man may accomplish if he does not care who gets the credit. It's a good saying. Good saying for Christians. Good saying for disciples. Good saying for us here at Abbey. Good saying for you in your friendship. No limit to what a man may accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And so we see it to, there's no one-upmanship. I'm better than you or you're better than me and that sort of thing. We're in it together. Secondly, there's no isolationism in this. You know, we want to separate ourselves from other believers. We're at one with them. doesn't mean to say we always agree, but we do belong to one another. See, that was the trouble with the Essenes, a group that lived in Jesus' day or shortly after Jesus' day. They were a sort of cult. They lived in the... Uh, they bec- uh, you remember the... the uh, lived in Cames at Qumran, remember? And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. They shut themselves away waiting for the coming of the Messiah and they didn't want to mix with anybody else lest they got mixed up with the impurities in the world. They wanted to be pure, so they isolated themselves from all these other people. But not so, says Jesus. When Jesus the Messiah came, he was accused of partying and carousing with other people. (laughs) He knew what they were like. He wouldn't meet with them. He goes to parties. This man eats and drinks with sinners, is what they said about him. You know, there's, we cannot live in mental or metaphorical caves. You belong to me. I belong to you. Do you remember C.S. Lewis, Narnia? Have you ever read the books of Narnia? And uh, one of them, Aslan the Lion. The children asked, is he safe? And they saw the lion. Is he safe? Because the lion was representing God. Is he safe, they said. And the reply came back, No, he's not safe, but he's good. It's not safe in the world in that sense. But God has called us to fellowship with one another. We cannot be isolated from each other. Your work on a Monday morning is my business. My work is your business. At least it should be. And we're not very good at it, and that's what we're trying to learn. He sends us out into the world you in your factory, you in your place of work, you in your nursing home, you in your college, you in your f- uh, business office, and so on. Yeah, we're all separate doing things, as the video reminded us. But it's all of our concerns, because we're bound together in Christ. No isolationism. Thirdly, no people controlling. Stifles the urge to control others when we learn to love each other. If the Essenes wanted to separate themselves from other Pharisees, wanted to control people. They had a whole system of management. The Ten Commandments became 613 of them and so on. Jesus, when he came along, he says, Your laws tell me we mustn't work on the Sabbath. Watch this. And he took some corn and rubbed it in his hand, threshing it in his hand. And he was accused of breaking the Sabbath day because of it. It's not rules and regulations. It controls, too, the natural desire to correct others all the time, overcorrection of others like the chief priests who criticized others all the time. I mean, they themselves had compromised with the Roman Empire and their system 
became a tool of the Roman Empire. They reduced discipleship to a system. And then learning to love each other means that there's no system control and there's no um, need to overthrow everything that you don't like. Because the zealots did that. The zealots just wanted to overthrow everything as we thought about last week. So in all these things, love one another. It's the very heart of what marks us out to be a disciple. It's not your orthodoxy that marks you out as a disciple, what you believe, but it's your orthopraxy, your behavior, my behavior that marks me out. In church and out of church, in the community, amongst those you work with, your work colleagues, in your neighborhood, that's what marks us out as we love each other in those situations too, day by day. It's a commitment to share this discipleship together. The call of discipling is a call to a new community entirely of those who love one another out in the world, serving him and showing forth Christ. It's loving each other and it's uh, affirming each other and strengthening each other and empowering each other and supporting each other. So today we think of going out as disciples of the Lord Jesus. It's not just that we're disciples here. We're disciples every moment. It's part of what it means to be a believer, to love one another. We link our hands together as we follow the Master. Last week, we thought about James and John being called to follow Jesus. And Zebedee, the father of that fishing business, have you ever thought what he thought? What did he think when suddenly his two sons in the business got up and left? <laughs> Do you think he was peeved? <laughs> Taking off my best people. I don't think he was at all. Because remember, as we said last week, part of the educational system was that if they didn't, if they didn't achieve the educational standard and were to be accepted as a follower of a rabbi, the rabbi would say to them, go back into your community, have children, do a trade, have children. And maybe some of those will grow up to be rabbis themselves. I think that when James and John began to follow Jesus, Zebedee would have gone back home dancing. They've done it. My sons are following Jesus. It's wonderful. And though Yahweh hits our business, yes, I maybe have to have some more hired hands instead of my sons running the business, but my sons are following Jesus. Here's their master. They're his disciples. I think he probably was really encouraged. And as we send each other out, and as we encourage one another, the Lord Jesus sends us out. Let's encourage one another. Rejoice with each other. Dance with joy at what we're seeing with each other. When Claire sets up her childminding business and when somebody else has their home, home group and somebody else has, uh, meets with friends over a meal, we should be sharing in that and rejoicing in that and praying for each other and encouraging one another. That's part of what discipleship is all about, that he sends us out, uh, the Father sends us out in his name. Let's sing a little song together, shall we? And we're going to sing... I'll just put that up to finish off with a commandment here, my little children, new commandment I give you to love one another. But as we, as we come to take this bread and wine, let's sing together that little song that speaks about our relationship with each other. <laughs>